0: This recording of Jack Kornfield was made on October 7th, 1978 at a three-month Vipassana meditation retreat held at Barrie, Massachusetts. As I said before, to undertake a retreat like this is common in countries like Thailand and Burma for people to take time off in their life two months or three months to do intensive practice. And in fact, it's a requirement for monks and nuns each year to do a three-month rains retreat, which may or may not be this intensive, but basically to stay in one monastery, and particularly if they're in a meditative tradition, to devote themselves to practice. So we join them, join many other people in this undertaking. I'd like to first talk a little bit about how it's how it's seen or approached in monastery in Asia. We've really created a monastery here together. If you were to go to Burma and visit Mahasi Sayadaw's monastery, he has 150 different meditation centers in the country of Burma, which isn't a whole lot bigger than California. It's quite extraordinary. There are many other teachers there as well, beside his tradition, but his main center in Rangoon can hold, I think, one or two thousand people, maybe a thousand, and it's often full. People are coming continuously, not so much in groups, but individually to receive instruction and practice, and there's a whole large staff of teachers who give instructions and follow up. The instructions given are not sequential like we've done at the beginning of the retreat, but they start with everything. They say, as soon as you get here, begin by focusing your attention on your breath at the nose or the rising falling of the abdomen. And every time your mind wanders to anything else, a pain, a sensation in the body, a thought, a sound, make a note of that. You're sitting, and there's a knee pain, paining, paining, then you don't like it, irritated, irritated, then you think about leaving, thinking, thinking, then you feel really bored, feeling bored, feeling bored, then a sound comes, hearing, hearing, then you see a picture of what that sound might be, seeing, seeing, then a reaction to that, gee, that's somebody else, thinking, thinking. To not let a single moment go by In which you're not noticing what the process of your experience is. Seeing, thinking, hearing, feeling, touching, painting, seeing, in, out, in, out, hearing, hearing, seeing. To slow down a whole lot, as Joseph demonstrated last night, to take perhaps half a minute just to turn your head and look at something and be aware of the seeing and the reaction. Turning back, turning back, stopping, feeling settled, in, out, again. That kind of care with everything starting from the first day. They also start people from the first day with four hours sleep and work downward from there. (laughs) And that's not to say that it's easy, it's difficult. It's difficult for people in Burma as it is here. But there's an expectation that if you come You really want to do it. And the kind of care that's taken, that continuity of being with each single thing that happens without a break through the day, and of paying careful attention not to the content, but to the process of each thing that's happening, builds the samadhi, builds the concentration, quickly for people. And many, many people in just several weeks get quite concentrated because people are willing to do it in a very full and wholehearted way. In addition, the interviews there are usually done in groups. They call it checking, and there's group checking, like five or ten people will come in a group, and one of the side belts there will ask, how's your meditation? Give you about thirty seconds to say what's happening. I'm seeing a lot of light. I've got a lot of pain in my body. My mind is confused a lot. Whatever it is, you just respond. You're right there. It's not a dawdling with it. And then he'll tell you what to do, which is usually, are you making a careful note of that? Pay attention to that. Or he might tell you to sit up straight or or walk a bit more if you're feeling sleepy or something like that. Next, next, next. There's not much interest in psychological melodrama. It happens and people go through their ups and downs and my poor mother and I'm thinking of my child and I um, go through these trips about eating and all the kinds of trips that we know we go through. People aren't interested so much in that. They're really interested in you looking at the very basic process of your mind and how it happens and in doing so, in getting some deeper insight and understanding that leads to real enlightenment. And that psychological stuff, although it's important to learn how to let go of it and see the patterns, is a much more superficial level of the mind and of understanding. People work very hard there, and a lot of them get enlightened. At least have some taste of enlightenment, is what I mean, some very deep understanding in themselves from their practice. So that's really the kind of thing that's expected, and done, and people follow through on it. And it's that kind of energy and perseverance that brings quite wonderful results in practice. If you went to be in the forest tradition with someone like Ajahn Mun, who I read about last night, Ajahn Chah's teacher, being in the cave the night before with the demon, the forest tradition is even harder. It's an ascetic tradition, and I'll speak of it in a couple of nights more fully. But when Ajahn Mun's students would get malaria, which most everyone did who lived in the forest for very long in those days, until quite recently, he would say to them, you're not really a good monk unless you can sit up and meditate with it. And malaria is, really knocks you out. I have had it, and it's just... No, it makes most of the kind of complaints that we have in practice seem much more um, trivial, perhaps, by comparison. That's just the the kind of energy that people go about practice. This is a quote from uh, Gurdjieff, actually spoken through his student Uspensky. Says, if a person gives way to all their desires or panders to them there will be no inner struggle in them, no friction, no fire. But if for the sake of attaining liberation they struggle with the desires that hinder them, then they will create a fire which will gradually transform their inner world into a single whole. can be inspired by that possibility of being whole and wholehearted. There's a traditional quote, which I don't necessarily believe, but it's used to motivate people in practice by scaring them, and it's said, who knows if it's true, it's said that a human birth is really precious, and that for a being who is born in one of the lower realms, an animal realm or some other realm, to be born as a human being is most infrequent. And the image that's given is, if you can imagine an ox yoke, which is sort of a circular thing put over the neck of an ox, floating on the oceans, back and forth, tossed by the winds. and in the depth of the ocean is a blind turtle that every hundred years sticks its head up above the water. The chance that that turtle will stick its head up through the ox yoke is the chance of, of beings who are in the millions and billions and trillions of them in the insect and animal realm being reborn as a human. I don't know. But it is precious and it is special and our time here is really special. And it's not a question of practicing and losing weight or practicing and getting rid of our neurosis or figuring out our mother or our father or our husband or wife trip. But it's really to get to the bottom of the question of life itself. Who are we? What makes up our experience? And to ask that question, to come to the end of our questioning, requires a kind of passion, a kind of urgentness, to see, to know. When I practiced at Ajahn Asabas, where I did the retreat in the room for more than a year, I never did anything so fully in my whole life. I practiced pretty hard at Ajahn Chalas, but I was going through my trips. Should I be here? Should I leave? All the kind of struggles that most people are probably familiar with in their practice. By the time I got there, I knew that I just couldn't, couldn't be half-hearted anymore that it was too important for me. And I did it, and I just threw myself into it. And I made every movement slow, except when I was tired, which then I'd walk fast. And I sat, and I walked, and I sat, and I walked, and I started at four hours a night, and I worked down and sleep. And I'm somebody who likes sleep a lot, so it wasn't easy, particularly. And when I was tired, I'd sit with my knee pain, because I knew it would keep me awake. And I just did it, in, out, in, out, in, out, hearing, hearing, thinking, thinking, in, out, again and again, coming back to the moment, seeing the process. And I went through incredible mood swings, from depression to elation to depression, and I went through changes in concentration, times it would get real concentrated, and i feel like, wow, I'm really getting somewhere, and then it would drift away again, and I would keep doing it because at that time I really wanted to come to the end. I wanted to know. Christopher Titmus, who teaches here at other times, many of you know, a very wonderful teacher and a good friend of mine, when he was first practicing in a monastery of Ajahn where we spent some time practicing together, his body, he'd never done yoga and he's kind of tall and and gawky, and not so, uh, wasn't so in touch with his body, and not particularly athletic. And we'd sit on the floor again in the monasteries, and his knees would stick up like this, and, and kind of bony, and it was really uncomfortable. And there would be a long chant before meal times, and then we'd sit and eat meals, um, and you weren't supposed to move during that time, and long periods of time of practice sitting in front of the teacher, or sitting in in group practice and then long standings, an hour or two standing meditation. And he said for his first year there, which was before I came, I was in a different monastery, he said he sat and he sat and there was so much pain and he just kept sitting, he just kept doing it. And one day, almost a year after he came there, it's like something snapped. And he said he'd been sitting with the most incredible pain at lunch one day, which was like what he had every day, and the, something snapped and his mind just became disconnected from that attachment to the body in that way. And he said he was just filled with light and stillness, even though the pain was still there, it just became very, very unimportant in the space of the mind. And when I came there to see him, it was, he'd been there perhaps two years, And he'd just come to the depth of his practice at that point, not long before. And he was like meeting somebody who was half made out of light. It was fantastic to see him. He would walk for ten hours, or he would sit for hours and hours. And he didn't need to move, because he was in such rapture, and his mind was so concentrated. It was fantastic. But he worked really hard, and he really wanted to know. This is from the Zen Master Sansanim, who may perhaps visit us later in the three-month retreat for a day, talking to his student who wrote him about practice, said that their practice was good, that he'd helped their practice. He said, Zen practice, meditation practice, is of the greatest importance. You must decide to practice and very strongly keep this decision. This requires great faith great courage, and great questioning. What is great faith? Great faith means that at all times you keep the mind which decided to practice no matter what. It's like a hen sitting on her eggs. She sits on them constantly, caring for them and giving them warmth so that they will hatch. If she becomes careless or negligent, the eggs will not hatch and become chicks. So Zen mind means always and everywhere, believing in myself and my practice. I vow to become Buddha and save all beings. Next, what is great courage? This means bringing all of your energy to one point, to the moment. It's like a cat hunting a mouse. The mouse has retreated into its hole, but the cat waits outside the hole for hours on end without the slightest movement. It is totally concentrated on the mouth hole. This is Zen mind, cutting off all attachment and directing all of your energy to one point in the moment. Next, what is great questioning? This is like a child who thinks only of its mother or a person dying of thirst who thinks only of water. It is called one mind. If you question with great sincerity, there will only be awareness only wanting to know and only seeing in each new moment. If you keep these three, great faith, great courage, and great questioning, you will soon attain enlightenment. You said that practice is difficult. This is thinking. Practice is not difficult. If you say it's difficult, this means you've been examining yourself too much, examining your situation, your condition, your opinions. So you say practice is difficult. But if you keep the mind that is before thinking and planning, then practice is not difficult, and it's not easy. The truth is only like this. Don't make difficult. Don't make easy. Just practice, and you will see. The more and more deeply you pay attention, what happens in practice is that you see more and more clearly The characteristics of existence. You see a Nietzsche. You see how things are impermanent again and again, seeing, hearing, all that we are, knowing, feeling, touching, in, out, in, out. Pay attention to the process of change. Notice the beginnings of things. Notice the ends of them. Look at the process. Stay right in the moment with it. And it gets deeper and you see, oh wow, on a new level, it really does all change. And oh, there really isn't anything to hold on to because it's all dissolving away one moment after the next. Each sound, each word, each sight, everything dissolving, changing. Tune into that. The practice is really a deepening perception of this flow of experience that makes us up, of change from moment to moment and of the the unsatisfactoriness of it. At times it will seem really awful, boring, frightening, disgusting, perhaps, at certain times. That's insight, too, because you can't hold on to it. At other times it will be beautiful and rapturous. That's okay. The real practice is to keep letting go. If there's rapture, 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 make a note of it, notice it. If there's concentration, be aware of that. If there's disliking, be aware of that. To let go of absolutely everything. To surrender from one moment into the next, into the next. And just to be there, no matter what happens. That's what brings enlightenment. Not trying to figure it out, not trying to make it better, not trying to change yourself. Really being with it, and seeing it, and feeling it, and noticing it. Doesn't mean the kind of energy and effort that I'm implying in the talk that you can't do it with a light heart. I remember going to see Ajahn Tui, who is uh, one of the teachers at this Burmese monastery where I was practicing quite intensively. And I'd been working so hard, and I went to see him, and he looked at me and he said, Do your walking and sitting, he said, with Jai Pong San which is a Thai word for a heart with light. Light lighthearted. Take care. Make it into a dance, if you like. You can be very graceful with it. Be there every moment, but it's not tense and it's not grim. It's really to settle into it and feel and be with the play of each new change of experience from one moment to the next. The Diamond Sutra. Thus shall you think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. That quality of seeing everything come and dissolve each moment in your experience, to be open to that, it's not one of tension, but it's one of really keeping a fresh mind, an open mind, looking each new moment, again and again, coming back. To tune into the empty quality of things, they come and go. Kalu Rinpoche, who I've talked about earlier in the retreat, had a student in Canada many of you have heard this story. Having a great deal of difficulty, she came back from India and she was isolated, trouble with family and job, and she'd been a nun, and she felt just really, really off balance. And she wrote him a letter and said, everything is difficult and struggle, but the one thing that keeps me going is that I keep you in my heart. And he wrote her a letter back, which was one line, It was very cutting. He didn't want her to get trapped in anything. He said, The nature of the heart is emptiness. The nature of everything is emptiness. Don't hold on to a single thing. Not even anything. (laughs) And then he wrote her a poem after that, because even though it was like a sword, that letter let go of even that, his poem quite beautiful. He said, when you practice the holy Dharma, slowly the clouds of sorrow will drift away and the sun of wisdom and great joy will be shining in the clear sky of your mind. To practice really fully and wholeheartedly makes the space for that light to come from inside. I want to close then by reading you a poem from Rabindranath Tagore who is a very great Indian poet. He won the Nobel Prize for his poetry around the turn of the century, called The Prayer of the Bodhisattva, since we're all bodhisattvas together. He said, let me not pray to be sheltered from dangers, but to be fearless in facing them. Let me not beg for the stilling of my pain, but for the heart to conquer it. Let me not look for allies in life's battlefield, but to my own strength. Let me not crave an anxious fear to be saved, but work with unending patience to win freedom for all beings. Thank you for listening.